0: is the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel... But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them uh, the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel He will take your daughters, to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and uh, uh, female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks And you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated uh, them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we have gathered here to worship you, the supreme king over heaven and earth, Lord, over all things seen and unseen. Uh, Lord, we give you our allegiance and um, our devotion. Our great hope is for your kingdom, and we pray that as we study your word, you would send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds and to draw us to our Savior, Jesus, that we would receive him with faith, with trust, and that we would follow him with obedience. And so, uh, Lord, we open our hearts and our minds to your word now, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are uh, looking at an important uh, passage from the, the Old Testament that marks an imp- uh, important moment in the history of, of the people of Israel in the Old Testament when they transitioned from the age of the judges. So after Moses and Joshua led the people out of Egypt and brought them to the Promised Land, they were, they were ruled by these local judges. And now they're transitioning into the age of the monarchy. So in this passage, the people come to Samuel and say, we want a king. And for the centuries that will follow uh, after 1 Samuel, the, the Israel be, will be ruled by kings. But uh, this passage is not only important in the progression of Israel's history. But it's also an important passage contributing to the political theory that comes from the Bible because uh, it's a passage about political leadership. And this, uh, the main body of this passage is a speech that Samuel gives to the leaders. It's a warning uh, about political leadership. And Christians throughout history have made massive contributions to the political theory of the Western world. And just to give you a few examples, uh, there was the theologian Lactantius who, was, uh, who influenced Constantine in the Roman Empire and gave him a, a whole theory of, of religious liberty in the Edict of Mar- Milan when Constantine said that everyone can follow their own personal conscience, and in their in whether they're a Christian or not a Christian, in their religious beliefs. Or um, Or for example, Augustine during the time of the fall of of the Roman Empire, he had the the doctrine of original sin that said all people have corrupt hearts. And and so therefore, leaders, political leaders need checks and balances to guard against uh, corruption in the government. Or for example, the writing of the Magna Carta in the Middle Ages Um, in England in the development of human rights or John Calvin in the time of the Reformation. John Calvin uh, uh, had a whole new vision of society where leading up to that time people envisioned society as being held together by kings and nobles and this class system that held together a society and John Calvin said you know what holds together a society is people doing their work And that's how you love your neighbors. You do your work to serve your neighbor and for the glory of God. And it's commerce that actually holds together society. It's a whole new way of imagining how society works. Or the Covenanters in Scotland that gave a foundation for you know constitutional government. Or the the Puritans and the Presbyterians and the forming of of, of America and you know a democratic republic. These are the most some of the most profound uh, political developments in the history of the world. And they've come from Christians applying the truths of the gospel into their civilization, into their society. And passages like this one from 1 Samuel 8 have been instrumental in forming that political theory. And so today what I'd like to do is draw out some political lessons from this passage by, by answering three questions for us from 1 Samuel 8. This is what they are. What are the political warnings that the Bible gives us? What are the political principles that the Bible gives us? And what is the political hope that the Bible gives us? Political warnings, the political principles, and the political hope. And my hope is that we'd see that political theory and theology often overlap. They have throughout Christian history where theologians have had to think about how do societies work together. And so we're going to look at three questions this morning. And the first is this. What are the warnings? What are the uh, um, the political warnings that we see from uh, 1 Samuel eight? What are the warnings that the Bible gives us about uh, give us when we think about the role of government in society? And I want to point out four warnings from this passage. And the first is this: is that all people are sinful, including our leaders. The first political warning that the Bible gives is that all people are sinful, including our leaders. And you see how this passage begins in verse 1. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, this is an important statement because up to this point, Samuel's really been a hero in Israel. Uh, he was, he's been a faithful priest and a prophet. And, uh, and in the last chapter, he led Israel into a spiritual revival where they put away their idols and they returned to the Lord. And they said, we're going to obey the Lord. And then he led Israel into a victory over their, their enemies, the Philistines. And so Samuel has been a hero through, through these chapters. But it turns out that even the sons of faithful Samuel are morally corrupt. You see what it says there in verse two. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So here's Samuel, who's like a second Moses in the history of Israel. And he appoints wicked sons to judge the people. And it's just like, you know, Eli, who we read about earlier, had two wicked sons who were abusing the people. And now Samuel has two wicked sons who are abusing the people. And so even Samuel is flawed as a political leader. We see nepotism. We see him turning a blind eye to the sins of his children. And then throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see that the sinful kings deeply plague the people that they rule over. And so the first biblical principle in political uh, theory is that all people are sinful including our leaders. And so as a result, that has created that Christians have a skepticism about those who are in, in political power. And that comes, you know, at least back to the time of Augustine, who was writing around the the, the, uh, the fall of the Rome, Roman Empire, or the fall of Rome, and uh, in, in the city of God, when he talked about original sin, that all people are, are born with corrupt hearts. And it's not because... Augustine thought that he was more righteous than the political leaders if you read Augustine's confessions he knows that he saw in his own heart corruption and it's because we know about our own sin that we believe that all people and God's word tells us that we all all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that we know that political structures need checks and balances to curb the sinfulness of humanity and uh And this really, uh, and so the beginning of Christian political theory is a distrust of political leaders that simply comes from a distrust of ourselves. And that really leads to a second warning. And so if the first warning is that all people are sinful, including our leaders, that original sin is a political doctrine, the second warning that we see in this passage is that we look to political leaders as our saviors. We look to political leaders as our saviors. So there's, you know, there's a problem with the leaders themselves. There's also a problem in us. There's, we should distrust the political leaders, but we have to also distrust our own hearts that we have a tendency to look to political leaders as our saviors. And you see that there in verse 4 where it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now... Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Now why was Samuel displeased when the people said, Give us a king? Well, there are two reasons that I want to point out. The first is uh, that God was already the people's savior. He had saved them out of Egypt, and he had defeated their enemies, and he cared for them and provided for them, and he, is, he was their king. And so what they were basically saying was, we don't want the Lord to be our king anymore. We want an earthly king like the other nations have have a, a king. And that's what exactly what it says in, in uh, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day. So on the one hand, they're saying, we don't want the Lord as our king and savior anymore. But the second reason Samuel's upset is because they wanted a king like all the other nations. Israel was supposed to be different than all the other nations. And they said, now we want to become like all the other nations. And what do all the other nations expect from their kings? Well, look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. You hear the expectation. If we get the right leader, first of all, he's going to unify us. All the factions that are happening, he's going to bring us together and make us a unified people. So he's going to solve all the problems inside, and then all the threats from outside, he's going to defeat all our enemies and solve all our problems, and he will give us peace. And Israel, 3,000 years ago, is no different than we are today. We have the same expectations that we think the right political leader You know, you think all the problems in our society is like, who's going to solve COVID? Who's going to solve, you know, racial tensions? Uh, Who's going to solve poverty and the economy and the education of children? And who's going to solve the problems in immigration? Is that we expect our political leaders that they will give us peace. Now, you consider this combination where you have political leaders who themselves have sinful hearts and that are self-serving and self-aggrandizing and, and they have selfish ambition, and then you combine that with a people who expect them to be our saviors and feed that ambition by saying, we want you to be our saviors. That, leads, that combination leads to a third warning, is that we encourage an ever-expanding state. When our political leaders have their own ambitions and we feed those ambitions, it leads to an ever-expanding state. And this is the warning that Samuel gives the Israelites and I just want you to hear as he gives his speech to them, all the areas of their lives that will be touched and invaded by this king. You look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said... These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. This is describing all the military and agricultural ambitions of this king and how his goals are not to serve the people, The goals are to serve himself and his own ambitions of what the kingdom that he wants to build. And then there's this long list starting in verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. What's the word that's being repeated over and over? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. And this is going to affect your family, your business, your house, your income. The king is going to have his hand on all of these things. When a society rejects God as her king, the human state will more and more take on godlike status in that society. And the only one, one who is meant to rule and command the details of our families and businesses and wealth is God himself. And you can even hear the God-like role of the state that Samuel is warning about in this passage. Look at verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Who's supposed to get a tenth of their flocks? Who, are, who is, are we supposed to be, whose servant are we supposed to be? The Lord. And you see uh, the warnings of this passage that when we underestimate the sinfulness of the human heart and we look to political leaders as our saviors to solve the world's problems and we feed the ambitions of political leaders, this results in an ever-expanding state that works its way deeper and deeper into our lives. There's one final warning it's the fourth warning is this, is that when we reject God as our king, he will give us over to our own foolishness. When we reject God as king, he will give us over to our own foolishness. And that's often what the, how the Lord deals with our foolish desires is he says, is if this is what you want, I will give you what you want to show you that you actually really want, I'm the only good king to have. And you see what he says there in verse nine. Now then... Obey their voice. The Lord says to Samuel, listen to the people. Give them what they want. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then down in verse 18, it says, And in that day you you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So if a society rejects the Lord, he will give us over to our desires. And that means that not even something like democracy can save a people from self-destruction. Even Aristotle said he saw how democracy in the Greek city-states could still destroy them. Because if the people are foolish and you give them a vote, they will choose their own destruction. And so the first thing we learn from this passage about political theory are the warnings. That all humans by nature are sinful and they have corrupt hearts, even our leaders. And the reason we have a skepticism about political leadership is because we know our own hearts. Just as Augustine knew his own heart. And so the problem is not just the politicians, it's us. We have a tendency to look to political leaders as saviors. And the combination of these two things, the ambitions of the political leaders, their own corrupt hearts and our corrupt hearts that make them saviors, leads to an ever-expanding state that is largely de- devoted to serving the ambitions of the political leaders. And it is the pattern of the Lord to give people over to their own foolishness, to show them that he alone is meant to be our king. So those are the warnings. Now, what does the Bible give us as, um, as principles as, to curb those warnings? Those dangers. Is, is there any positive principles about political theory that we see in this passage? And, and that leads to our second question is, is, what are the political principles that the Bible gives us? And there are many that the scriptures give us. I'm going to point out a couple from this passage. Two, two principles. First principle is this, is that we should be governed by a written document. We should be governed by a written document. So if humans are sinful, then the highest earthly authority should not be a human. It should be a written document that doesn't have a sin nature. And uh, you may not see that in this passage explicitly, but hiding in uh, the background of this chapter is another important chapter from the Old Testament about political theory, which is is Deuteronomy 17. And 1 Samuel 8 is in many ways a fulfillment of, of what Moses wrote would happen in Deuteronomy 17. And let me read to you what Deuteronomy 17 says. Moses says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So you can hear how similar to this passage about choosing a king like the other nations. And it tells us that it's not wrong for Israel to want a king. But they are unwilling to wait for the king that the Lord would choose. They need to wait for the, the, the king that the Lord chooses And it goes on to say that the king, you know, should not be taking all kinds of wives and women and wealth from the people for himself. And so many of Samuel's warnings that he gives to the people in 1 Samuel 8 are are back there in Deuteronomy 17. Except Deuteronomy 17 goes on to give a positive picture, not just the negative picture, but also a positive picture about what God's king should be like. And it's really an amazing statement. This is what it says. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. This is an amazing statement that the king is going to write out the law of God. And the the law that he's writing out isn't a law for all the people to live under. It's a law for him to live under. And it's interesting note there that the copy of the law that he's supposed to have needs to be approved by the Levitical priests. It's like the Levitical priests are another branch of government that are balancing his power. They have kind of a legislative or judicial power, and he has an executive power, and he has to approve the law that he lives under from the Levitical priests. This is why I say the Bible gives us a vision for the highest earthly authority in a government to be a written document. The king wasn't supposed to have a law that he made for everyone else to live under. He had a law that he himself lived under. And what's even more remarkable in the Bible is not just the earthly king who was going to live under a, a, a written document, but God himself as the king makes a covenant with his people. And he says, these are my promises to you. God himself is a king lives, binds himself to a written document and says, I will rule you according to my promises. If God himself lives under, you know, rules under a written document, how much more does an earthly king need to? And then when the Lord Jesus comes as the true king of the earth, he does everything that's written in God's law perfectly. He lives under the written code. Now, we don't live in a theocracy like Israel was. Israel was a church-state nexus. It was the church and the state were one. And so the written document that they lived under was the Law of Moses. And We don't have the president live under the Law of Moses or the Bible. Um, but we do have a constitution, or you know, a written document that is the, our highest authority. And this comes from the covenantal nature of the Bible that has shaped the political theory of the Western world. And if I could add one more point to this, what both Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel insist upon is that character, the character of our political leaders matters immensely. The character of our political leaders matters immensely. And, you know, the Old Testament does tell us that there are times where God will take a a brutal king like like Cyrus was a a, a king of the the Persians who defeated the Babylonians and, and sent the Israelites back to the promised land to rebuild the temple. And so God used someone like Cyrus. But Christians should never lose sight of the importance of righteousness in their leaders. Proverbs 29 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And Deuteronomy says that the model king was supposed to meditate on the written law and he was supposed to live under it himself. And so the desire of God's people should be for leaders who exemplify humility, integrity, dignity, self-sacrifice, courage, and a servant heart. And so the first biblical principle is that we should be governed by a written document. Second principle is that we should be governed by elected representatives. And you see what it says there in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And you might wonder, well, who are all these elders? Well, there was a whole system of uh, rulers throughout Israel who were locally governing the people. And how did they get in those positions? Well, again, if you go back to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 1 tells us that Moses says to the people, you should choose for yourselves uh, wise and discerning men who will act as judges over tens and over fifties, over hundreds and over thousands, so they're at different levels of government that are going to rule over the people. And, uh, and it's remarkable that Mo- Moses did not choose those people. The people chose them for themselves, people from among them, their neighbors and people that they knew. And so the king was supposed to be chosen by God, but the local elders should be chosen by the people. And so when you put all these pieces together, how would the picture from 1 Samuel and Deuteronomy translate into our day? Well, God intends that we should all ultimately live under the rule of his chosen king. And who is God's chosen king? Is Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Jesus is the king of all kings and all rulers of the earth will bow before him. And Jesus does not want people who have been forced to follow him. He wants people who have, whose hearts have been changed to love and to believe in him and to follow after him. And so that's why we believe in a religious pluralism, that people can follow their own conscience and who they want to worship. But under the supreme lordship of Jesus, we are to be governed by officials. In our case, you know, federal, state, county, city officials that are elected representatives of the, of the people. And this picture of a government goes back over 3,000 years to the time of Moses in the the writing of Deuteronomy. And it has shaped the political theory of of the Western world. But if we try to put anyone in the place of God's chosen king as the supreme authority, things will go badly for us. And so this leads to our, our final question. We've looked at the political warnings. We've looked at the political principles. Now, what is the political hope? that the Bible gives us. If Jesus is God's chosen king and people should not be forced to believe in him, then our greatest political hope should be a spiritual revival, which is something that neither a Democratic or a Republican party can give to us. A revival, people's hearts being turned to the true king, is a work of God that only God can do. And in the early church, one of the main reasons that Christians were persecuted was because they refused to participate in the civil religion of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, they said, yeah, everyone can worship whatever gods you want as long as you also worship the emperor. And so uh, politics and religion were brought together. They were made one, and Christians refused. They said, the, the center of our faith is that Jesus Christ is Lord, which means that Caesar is not. Jesus Christ is the divine son of God. Uh, uh, Caesar is not and so we must not forget that our Christian faith is a political allegiance we believe that Christ is Lord we are members of of a multinational kingdom that is in every continent every nation in every language in every culture every ethnicity there are people who have given their allegiance to Jesus as Lord and it's the greatest kingdom the most enduring kingdom in the history of the earth And Jesus has the most devoted followers of any king ever. And I'll tell you why Jesus is so different than the kings of all the nations that the people wanted in this passage. You know, a couple weeks ago our staff was talking about this passage as I was preparing for this sermon. And and someone had made the comment that, you know, Samuel gives this warning where he says, Hey, this king, he's going to send your sons into battle for him and he's going to take your daughters as servants and he's going to take all your possessions to build his kingdom. And doesn't Jesus do that? Doesn't Jesus take our sons for his battle and our daughters as his servants and our possessions to build his kingdom? No, he doesn't. We give him our sons and our daughters and our possessions because we love him. He doesn't force us. He doesn't even force a tenth. There's all kinds of Christians who don't give a tenth of their possessions because Jesus wants a tenth because we love him and we trust in him. And why do we love and trust in him? Because before he asked us to give our sons and daughters, God sent his own son for us. And before he asked us to be servants and slaves, Jesus, our King, came not to be served. But to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And all of our possessions that we offer to him for his kingdom, he first gave to us. He's given us everything that we have. And Christians throughout history who have given of their flocks, you know, their sheep, their lambs, their rams, they've given to the Lord as an offering. The Lord himself came as the true lamb of God who was sacrificed and offered for us. Our king is not a taker. He is a giver, and we want to give back to him, and we freely give back to him. And so what is our political hope? Our political hope is that Jesus is king. And at the center of our political theory is the lordship of Jesus. And so even though the gospel has all kinds of wise implications for us about constitutionalism and elected, uh, elected officials and the need for checks and balances— None of these things will ultimately matter unless God's king is our Lord and Savior. And we must be determined that we will not bow to the political religion of our day. When we gather here every Sunday, this is a political gathering for us to say our king is Jesus. He alone is worthy of our allegiance. He is worthy of our devotion. He's worthy of our generosity. And it's his kingdom that we long to see expanded in the earth. And so may glory be to God's true king in heaven and in earth now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you alone are worthy of glory. You alone are worthy of, of supreme glory authority, and rule, because wisdom is yours, power is yours, honor and majesty and glory are all yours. And Lord, we praise you that you have transferred us out of the domain of darkness, the city of man, and you have uh, transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, made us citizens of the city of God. And that is our deepest love and desire is your kingdom. And we are here gathered to pray, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that not only the wisdom of your word would, would shape our land and, and nations uh, around the earth, but even more, we pray for spiritual revival, that um, that the hearts of the people in our land would not put their trust in princes, but would put their trust in the one who is shown to be the true Lord of heaven and earth, the one who's been raised from the dead and conquered death and sin and the devil, the Lord Jesus. And we are so grateful that he has loved us and called us and um, brought us into your family. And so we're here to honor him and give our allegiance to him. We pray in the blessed name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.